Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, July the 28th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In a little while, I'll be joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, to discuss the latest pronouncements of Dominic Cummings and a few other matters too. But first, Jennifer Bray and Jack Horgan-Jones of our political staff are here. Jack, is it fair to say that the body politics biorhythms have been slowing down a bit over the last week or so? Yes, absolutely. Um, Talking to people this morning, they were uh, really imbibing the fact that they were on their holidays and looking forward to other substances that they will be imbibing very shortly. Uh, Ministers departing for the sticks, advisors putting their feet up and generally the system slipping into a much lower gear, uh, a lower gear that didn't happen last summer because of the, the kind of relatively chaotic changeover and then, you know, all the controversies around the Cromwell cabinet and various ministers for agriculture getting the sack or departing and Golfgate and all the rest of it. The, the, the foot never went off the pedal last summer and the foot is very much in the process of slipping firmly off that pedal this summer. But Jen, there's, I mean, there's various bits of, not just housekeeping, I mean, important things to do, announcements about the vaccine rollout. You just got an announcement there this morning that 70% of the adult population is now fully vaccinated. Those numbers are all looking very good. I think we're projected to, uh, we can't help ourselves comparing ourselves with them, projected to pass out the UK on uh, on the percentage of the population that's fully vaccinated in the, in the next couple of weeks if things continue on their current path. Plus some adjustments and announcement that uh, vaccines will be made available to 12 to 15 15-year-olds and flagging that booster shots will be available to some sections of the population in the autumn. So that all seems to be going okay. Yeah, it's going more than okay, actually. I think it's fair to say that the vaccination program is firing on all cylinders and uh, it's really, really flying along. Or as one minister said to me yesterday, it's going like the clappers. Um, and yeah, there's, you know, it was a busy enough agenda yesterday. So yesterday was the last cabinet meeting of the summer um, until they come back. Um, so there be there won't be another cabinet meeting until the very end of August, the very start of September. Um, now that's not to say there won't be anything happening, and that obviously we've got the Delta variant and all the concerns that exist around that. So there will be cabinet subcommittees, cabinet COVID subcommittees. I think there are three of those penciled in in August, so it won't be completely uh, quiet in that regards in relation to to ministerial work. But yeah, like there's a lot of milestones over the last day or two. We had Paul Reid, um, head of the HSE, out this morning talking about how. Um, over 70% of the adult population are now fully vaccinated and 85% partially vaccinated with 50,000 vaccines given out yesterday. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people will be very heartened to hear that and, and and to hear kind of our current projections where we're at. So what I'm told is at Cabinet yesterday, ministers were told that by the end of August, they expect to have the vast majority of the adult population vaccinated, which is um, an incredible turnaround when you think back to only a couple of weeks ago, really, when they were revising their forecast downwards and saying we're going to miss our target. If you know, 82% of adults offered a first job by the end of July and I think they're going to you know, smash those targets now, really. They're going to far exceed those or or um, somewhere in the realm, probably more than 85%. So um, positive news, really, uh, for the government in, in that regard. Um, other news that we had yesterday, you were mentioning um, big changes as well about the vaccination programme for 
children aged 12 to 15. So that's been approved now um, and there will be, uh, they'll be given um, RNA shots. Now, I'm told that if you register, once that portal opens, once the HSE are ready to do that, uh, this age cohort could be given the vaccine as early as late next week, um, which is, again, is a kind of an incredible turnaround when you think about it. Um, and you mentioned the UK, like it was only a couple of months ago, we were looking across the water being very, very jealous of how far progressed they were and, and how quickly they were moving. They've seen quite a significant slowdown now while we're really really picking up. And the other thing you mentioned, obviously, was in relation to booster shots. Uh, So the cabinet also agreed yesterday that uh, they will progress with the plan for booster shots. So what this will involve basically is uh, frontline workers, people over the age of 80, people with underlying medical conditions, given a booster shot potentially as early as September. Now, the the thinking behind this, obviously, is that the immunity after your first vaccine, after you've been fully vaccinated, actually, tends to wane somewhere between six to nine months. That's their current information. And that if you have the first bunch of people who are given the vaccination, obviously, the most vulnerable people in nursing homes at the start of the year, if you're looking ahead now, there is a real concern in government that that there could be reinfections in nursing homes and amongst older people uh, somewhere around September or October and that we could see a fifth wave or, you know, a fourth wave, depending on, well, I suppose we're in a fourth wave and it's going to be a fifth wave, a very serious one in terms of mortality and they really want to avoid that. Um, so they have two big jobs now to do in terms of the vaccination campaign. The first is a, the information campaign for parents that might be thinking, do you know what, I actually don't want to give this vaccine to my child. I'm willing to take it for myself, but I'm not too sure if I'd give it to my child. So they have to do that information campaign, obviously, you know, answer all the questions that are out there. And secondly, get organised for the booster campaign pretty much as soon as they reach their targets, they'll have to go into this new phase of, of pandemic planning. So it's it's it will quieten down in August, but there'll still be a lot happening. It's interesting, Jack, looking at these kind of numbers. I was just wandering around trying to have a look at comparisons with other European countries before we came on this podcast. It can be difficult to make comparisons because even a few days or a difference in a week or so and the numbers can make quite a difference. We seem to be kind of in the middle of the pack performing slightly ahead of the average of the EU uh, countries which are part of that joint programme. There are there are certain factors like the fact that the UK is more reliant on AstraZeneca and there's a bigger gap between, uh, between jabs there. But I mean, more than one person has remarked upon the fact that vaccine hesitancy seems to be much less of a factor in Ireland than it is in some other countries. Yeah, that's true. Um we have a we have an appetite for these jabs. Um and I think that what has been untested though is something that Jen touched on. Um is just how eager people will be for their children aged 12 to 15 to get this. So on the one hand we have an awful lot of factors going in our favor which would suggest we can do the 12 to 15 year olds really very quickly. Um, probably substantially get a lot of at least first doses into arms before schools go back. So there's only about 269,000 people in the 12 to 15 year old category, right? So when you consider the fact that we're doing or have been doing at least 350,000 shots a week, you know, through the mass vaccination centres, we can motor through that quite quickly. And also because the advice has come through now, all the infrastructure is still there around the mass vaccination centres. You know, all the people are trained up, they're all in situ, all the leases are signed in Croke Park and the Aviva and places like this. So there's no sense that we have to restart this or maybe do it through the school's vaccination programme. So that is also another thing that is in in our favour. And um, 
against that, you have to look at the added complexity around obtaining medical consent. The age of medical consent in Ireland is 16, so that needs to be, there will need to be some adjustments made to the consent forms and probably there'll kind of need to be changes to the precise modalities which the mass vaccination centres are run under because people may need to be accompanied by their parents. But what I think is, the, the, the unknown here is just the degree of public acceptance. If you look at, you know, the, the people who are going to be receiving the booster shots, I think that they'll gobble them up. It's the medically vulnerable, it's the over 80s, it's the healthcare workers, it's those people who are vaccinated back in January and those people who are at higher risk of um, of, of, of infection and, and serious disease. So I don't think there's going to be a problem there. I don't think that people have collectively thought really about the vaccination of children yet. I think that it's all been focused, all the targets, all the rhetoric, um, all the planning has been focused on adults. So I think that the government has has a very potentially tricky, but a very kind of precise job that it needs to do very well here. It needs to think about that communications campaign and what's going to make that work. Because as you say, the, the, the rollout so far has been characterised by very high take-up rates. And anything that kind of hurts that take-up rate amongst younger cohorts is going to hurt the overall level of vaccine penetration in the in the in in across society. And while that probably won't have an effect on hospitalizations or deaths, because we know that young people aren't going to get very sick with this, even if they do catch it, we do see a situation where the Delta variant is so transmissible that a large unvaccinated portion of society. Um, particularly a younger group, which circulates more and sees more people and is obviously in congregated settings like education, if they're still susceptible to it, you could see COVID and Delta pinging around Ireland uh, at a much higher rate than than we would like and at a higher rate that may inhibit the full resumption of some activities that are still uh, out of bounds, you know, like larger groups at weddings, uh, like like larger groups at christenings and communions and all the rest of it. So the full return to, to something a bit like normal could be inhibited by a persistence, which is itself driven by higher incidence rates amongst younger people. And, you know, if we don't negotiate that bit around convincing parents and younger people to get vaccinated, that it is safe, that could be a problem that trips us up going forward. Although I do wonder, because I think that's a, it's a complete unknown, really, Jen. We're looking at how the Delta operates in various countries, and uh, in the, the, some quite encouraging figures coming out of the UK over the last week or so that their their positivity rate seems to be going down a bit, but nobody seems exactly sure exactly why that is. And um, Minister for Education, Norma Foley, was basically saying this week, there's no doubt that schools are going to open. And it looks to me like this measure with children is designed to kind of copper fasten that to help schools in their project to, to reopen. And I'm still a bit unclear. A couple of people have remarked on this and Stephen Donnelly didn't have an answer for it this morning. Um, there are, you know, there has been a, a rise of to some extent in hospital numbers and ICU admissions. But with the hospital numbers, we don't know how many of those people actually were admitted to hospital with COVID or people who were just admitted to hospital who turned out to have COVID. And we don't know how many of those people were double were double vaccinated, uh, as far as I know, which seems like pretty simple numbers to get because there aren't actually all that many people who we're talking about here. Yeah, and this came up uh, yesterday, even actually at the post-cabinet briefing, um, where journalists were asking, you know, if you're all heading off for the hills, when you get this information in... How are we going to find out about it, basically? Um, so, you know, we found out at the weekend that Leo Varadkar um, and Fine Gael and the government had requested all the information that you mentioned 
um, specifically in relation to, like you say, how many people, uh, you know, went into hospital with COVID. And that was the reason how many people went in for something else and found out they had COVID there who maybe were vaccinated, maybe didn't have any symptoms, because it is important because obviously, you know, the whole point of the vaccination campaign was never that none of us would ever get COVID again apart from 2% of people, it was that it prevents, by and large, severe illness, serious illness uh, and symptomatic illness. Um, So it wouldn't be a great shock to find out that there maybe still are a large number of people who are vaccinated getting COVID, but perhaps not suffering um, the way they would have had they not got the vaccine. So this is all information that the government wants. And the reason why they want it is because they know that decisions that they make about any further easing of restrictions um, in in the coming weeks are contingent uh, on having that proper data, really. Um, and when I say further easing of restrictions, like I'm thinking here of the live events industry, um, artists, you know, um, gigs, all that kind of stuff, crowds, especially when we're coming into a time when you normally see like a lot of festivals in Ireland. And I know that there is a push behind the scenes in government from Catherine Martin, uh, the Minister for Culture and Media and Arts, to try and replicate this system that's being used in hospitality, which is people who are vaccinated, having greater access to different events, that that might be transferred over to the other sector. But all of that is contingent as well and having the proper data. So that is why it is important. And they don't have that yet. And you're right. Now, we would expect that given the sort of the headlines that were out over the weekend, saying government demands data from HSE, et cetera, et cetera, and Department of Health, that we might see that soon. But it would be interesting for sure to know, to know what are the what's the exact breakdown and what impact will that have? Now, having said that, the line that came from government yesterday was, right, we've increased weddings, numbers of weddings from the 5th of August from 50 guests to 100 guests and numbers allowed of baptisms uh, to 50. That's it now for August. Don't expect anything else for the rest of August. So that's the line they're putting out, uh, you know, blaming Delta and I'm glad to hear. It sounds as if Catherine Martin's been reading my column in the ticket because I've been arguing for the application Naturally. of those, those certificates to, uh, to to gigs and performance venues of, of 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 various sorts. I think it personally it makes absolute sense. Now, on a completely different matter, Jack, what the hell is a UN envoy for freedom of expression? I don't know, but we're about to find out. Um, and and another person who didn't know. Uh, uh, certainly about the appointment seems to be Michal Martin. And um, this is the appointment of uh, former Minister for Children, Catherine Zappone, who was a minister in the last government to this new and, and hitherto unknown of role and seemingly kind of dropped onto the cabinet agenda, if it was on the cabinet agenda at all, at the last minute by Simon Coveney. And it seems to kind of emanate from, you know, the relationships that she had. Uh, with the last government, and it seems to be a, a very sore case of of kind of misdiagnosis of a potential political landmine by the government, because uh, the minute it emerged, I think there was quite a strong backlash against this. First of all, because the the title, look, in some ways, it just sounds a little bit silly. Um, you know, we have a, a fairly well funded professional network of diplomats around the world who uh, whose job it is to represent Irish interests and views on all sorts of matters, including these sorts of matters. So the idea that, you know, someone who is obviously well-known and well-respected uh, across their, their field in Ireland um, would be necessary for this, I think some people just, it, it took them by surprise. And also there was just this view, found well-founded or otherwise, that, you know, Catherine Zappone is someone who um, obviously 
you know, is, is well remunerated for the work that she did in government via her pension and that this is just kind of another sinecure um, that I think people were describing it as, um, as you know, it, it, it's kind of jobs for the boys type thing. And uh, that's very much the way it was taken up. It reminded me of like a very minor version of some of the miscommunication calamities that the government went through last year when news would come out and trip them up and they just failed to see um, these hurdles coming and failed to negotiate them as they came. And, you know, it, it just speaks to perhaps a little bit of exhaustion at the end of term that they didn't see this coming. But it is the kind of thing that, you know, it should pop up on the risk register. It shouldn't be something that just gets waved through. And it sh- certainly shouldn't be something that apparently one side of government, the Fine Gael side of government, seemed to know all about. And the Fianna Fáil side of government, right up to and including the Taoiseach, knew nothing about until it was broached at the cabinet table. Yeah, and one last thought then, Jen, on something else. The Social Democrats, kind of quiet really, after quite a successful election campaign last year. Up until that election, they had two TDs, and those two TDs were the joint leaders of the party. Now they have more TDs, but they still have two leaders of the party. And they everybody seemed to be choking along okay with that, but then there were some stirrings on the undergrowth last week. Oh yeah, just before I get to that, when you were talking about Catherine Zappone there, an email dramatically pinged into my inbox from Sinn Féin, uh, hitting out a, a Zappone appointment, yet another example of Fine Gael cronyism. Um, so yeah, so you can see where you can see where that's going. Just thought I'd bring you that live breaking news from my email inbox there. Um, but yeah, sock dams, very interesting. Kind of came out of nowhere, to be honest with you. Well, to me, um, when I saw this uh, uh, letter that had come out from two councillors and I think fourteen other members of the party who were basically saying that. It's an interesting letter, actually, because they're talking about how great the party is and uh, actually how well the two co-leaders have done. Exceptional, I think, is the word that was used. Um, And then saying that the national executive should hold a meeting, potentially to call a leadership contest because the national executive can trigger a leadership contest. I think it needs two thirds of the members. Um, And like, to be honest with you, I was kind of greeted with a lot of uh, confusion amongst people I talked to briefly in the party late last week who just weren't expecting it. Catherine Murphy and uh, Roshan Shortall obviously have been co-leaders and in charge of the party since, I think, 2015. Um, and it is a long time, I suppose, not to have that conversation. The interesting thing is, in the letter, the, the members mentioned the fact that they had maybe thought that there would have been a contest or a conversation around the leadership after the last general election. But usually after a general election in which your party does very well, trebles its number of seats, you know, does better than people had predicted, you don't tend to have kind of the postmortems that you would have if you know, it was a terrible day at the races, basically. Um, I was very interested to see earlier in the week that uh, Cormac McQuinn, our colleague, wrote a piece uh, where I think he was kind of digging around this. And it seems that those members maybe are kind of backtracking a little bit and they're saying, well, we weren't didn't realise the general secretary was leaving. Maybe we should wait until after he goes and, you know, hold off on this. So, you know, and actually, if you see the reaction of the the more senior members in the party, all six of the TDs on Twitter were out defending the party and giving their full support to the to the co-leaders. But what I think it really does show is that there is, and there always has been in the Sockdowns, a disconnect between the top level of the party who exists in the Dáil and the parliamentary business and the membership. We've, we've talked about this before. And I think there are parts of the membership that believe they would do much better amongst voters and in the public arena, in the media, uh, you know, on RTE, wherever they, they appear, if they had a younger leader. And I, you know, that's not me saying that. That's what other people have said uh, in the membership party. They look up someone like Holly Cairns and they say, she'd be great, basically. And imagine how well we could do with that. Now, kind of a simplistic way to look at it. And personally, I think there's a huge amount to be said, like for 
you know, having experienced leaders. Um, but that's that, from what I can see, that's the snapshot of a, of a party with, the, with a disconnect uh, and always has had. And that's just coming to the fore again, I think. Mm, an possibly interesting straw in the wind for the future. We shall leave it there. Thanks very much to, to Jenna, to Jack. Stick with us. We'll be joined by Dennis Dunton. Get the inside track in marketing with the Inside Marketing Podcast. Every fortnight, we talk to some of the leaders of the Irish marketing industry and beyond. Whether it's the death of the cookie, the future of search, or exploring the world of gaming. Find out what it means for marketing in Ireland. Follow Inside Marketing to get Inside Marketing. Brought to you by Dentsu Ireland and the Irish Times Media Solutions. Available on all major podcast platforms. Dennis Staunton, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Hugh. Um, you were uh, having some, I believe, what are called interactions with um, former Boris Johnson advisor Dominic Cummings on Twitter last Sunday. In fact, when I look back at them, he seemed to be interacting with many, many people. He was having a sort of a Twitter meltdown. Well, he was having a conversation really on Twitter with David Gawke, who uh, used to be under Theresa May. He was Justice Secretary and he was one of the Conservative MPs who were expelled from the party uh, by uh, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings during the uh, the Brexit wars uh, in 2019. And he was, and they were talking about the negotiations and how Cummings would have done it all differently if either uh, they had taken over in 2016 after the referendum and you didn't have Theresa May, or if David Gawke and company hadn't uh, been able to push through this uh, act in Parliament, which basically ruled out a no-deal Brexit. Uh, it made it impossible to, to leave without a deal. And so uh, in the course of it, he was, uh, David Gawke was asking him what uh, he thought would have happened with the Northern Ireland border. And he said, well, we would just would have refused to build anything, uh, any infrastructure, any border in the IRC, any border on the island of Ireland, and then it'd be up to the European Union. And Gawke said, what do you think would happen then? And he said, I think Macron would have insisted on having uh, checks between Ireland and the rest of the European single market. So essentially a border between Ireland and the rest of Europe. So I uh, sort of retweeted that and sort of said Dominic Cummings thinks that uh, uh, that uh, the European Union would have thrown Ireland out of the single market to satisfy British demand. So he said, I didn't say that and I didn't mean it. So I said, I was sorry if I misinterpreted him. And I uh, said, I just didn't think that... Uh, Macron would have been able to persuade uh, the other member states to take that kind of action against a remaining member for the sake of one that was leaving. He said that he hadn't meant that either, that actually really what he was talking about was that they would do it to protect the European single market and so that it wouldn't be uh, actually anything uh, you know, to protect Britain in any way. And that I just suggested to him that that actually would be, uh, you know, uh, something that wouldn't really work in the context of a deal, but it might be plausible in the context of no deal. So if you had no deal, then they'd have to work out what they were going to do about uh, you know, protecting the single market. So he just agreed with that. So it was actually a very, uh, it was a very gentle, short and friendly exchange, really. It was very polite, yes. Yeah. So unusual, unusually for Twitter, Twitter, unusually polite. And I mean, and he has a point about some of these things. I mean, it's not that there weren't noises emanating from France uh, about what the consequences would there would be if there was no proper border between the the EU single market and a departed UK uh, that was kind of in the ether a little bit. Yeah, and I mean the, the fact is that there are three places you can have the border. You can have it between North and South. You can have it between uh, you know Britain and Northern Ireland, or you can have it between Ireland and the 
rest of the European Union. Now, as far as Ireland is concerned, the, the last one is almost worse than any other option, because it really would effectively be yanking Ireland out of the single market. And that's something which in terms of Ireland's you know, strategic direction is uh, is unthinkable. But uh, I mean, I think that uh, you know, first of all, so first of all, it certainly was something that was doing the rounds uh, as an option. And Macron definitely did suggest that this might be an option. But I do think it wouldn't have worked in terms of, you know, certainly as part of the negotiations. I mean, had there been a no deal Brexit or if, for example, sometime in the future, uh, the whole thing collapses in terms of the deal between Britain and the European Union. Who knows what's going to come back up? But actually, further on and later on, uh, Dominic Cummings was suggesting that he didn't really believe that the uh, that the Europeans would do that. That he thought they would just sort of find some other way of kind of terrorizing Britain on various other you know fronts, to kind of or to strong arm them. I think he put it. But I think to be fair to Dominic Cummings both in his Twitter um, exchanges with people uh, and also in his blog on Substack, he actually is engaging quite seriously and apparently candidly uh, with all of these questions. So, for example, what, you know, the fact that, as he said in his interview with Laura Kunzberg, he couldn't be sure if Brexit was a good idea, if it was the right thing. Uh, but actually, he says... He claims, well, nobody can be sure. It's kind of too soon to tell kind of thing. And, you know, maybe it was. But he explained why he put uh, Boris Johnson into Downing Street or helped him into Downing Street, even though uh, he thought uh, that he was an inadequate person and that he shouldn't be prime minister. And uh, and so so in a way, you know, he is adding to the sum of human knowledge and to uh, understanding. There are blind spots, I think, particularly about himself. I mean, I suppose like like many of us, uh, we're not always the best judges of our own strengths and weaknesses. Uh, I mean, these sort of counterfactuals are to some extent entertaining and perhaps to some extent useful, but you can really only go so far with them, can you? I mean, of course, he says, as you say, that if uh, if if a vote leave minded uh, conservative government had been in power in 2016. It wouldn't have made the the strategic mistake of triggering Article 50 without knowing what it wanted, and it would there would have been a whole different process would have, would have taken place. Uh, so that's interesting. Not surprising that he should say that. We shall never know if he was right, and there is some evidence to the to the contrary. Um, the other part of it then is, as you say, is the question of because no deal had been taken off the table. Do you think that that's what he ideally would have wanted was no deal at the end of 2019? No, but I think he did think that uh, there's no question, but that he thought that actually uh, with no deal off the table, their negotiating hand was weakened. And so, for example, and I think this is where it is more illuminating than the usual counterfactual. Uh, he talks about why they went for the Northern Ireland Protocol. And he basically said it's because it, Ireland is really quite a small problem and it doesn't matter very much. And that obviously does reflect a view within the Vote Leave faction that, uh, you know, whatever problems, you know, that uh, that are talked about in Ireland, that these problems have been exaggerated and that actually, uh, the, you know, Vote Leave or Brexit is about much bigger things. It's about getting out of the European Union, getting away. We've got to do it now. We've got to do it with a deal because of this legislation. And if the price of that is some kind of arrangement in Northern Ireland, fine. And of course, what that also uh, illuminates is what's happening now in terms of Boris Johnson's attitude to the Northern Ireland Protocol and the fact that he and David Frost have asked to 
effectively renegotiated. And that reflects the fact that Boris Johnson feels guilty about the fact that he signed up to this deal, that he lied to the Democratic Unionist Party, both before he did it and after he did it, about what it meant. And so he now wants to fix it. And that's obviously going to be rather difficult for him. That position, um, which we all know is held in in various quarters in in England and in Britain, which is that Ireland was small potatoes, which was blown up out of proportion and the far greater project of Brexit should not be halted uh, because of it. it. It does have the advantage of infuriating equally both nationalist and unionist on this island. Yeah, it does. And I mean, I think, though, from their point of view, uh, it really was, uh, you know, a small problem relative to the the larger goal of, you know, of ending this relationship with the European Union, of doing whatever it is they want to do with Britain outside Europe. And if they didn't believe the uh, that the threat of violence was actually as serious as some people said it would be, and if they basically didn't believe it was their problem, if they thought that, you know, whatever you do, we're not going to build a border between North and South. Uh, if there are goods crossing over and back, we don't care. And if you, the European Union, want to protect your single market, well, work it out for yourselves. That was their their view. Can I ask you about Cummings and what sort of figure he cuts in the United Kingdom now? It strikes me to be almost... Sometimes maybe this is unfair, but a, but but a comic figure. However, he has had some extraordinary electoral successes that have changed the political landscape completely in the United Kingdom. But his coming out with all barrels blazing against Boris Johnson um, really wasn't wasn't particularly successful. He didn't even manage to dislodge Matt Hancock. Hancock had to do that for himself. So, how is he regarded generally in the United Kingdom now? I think I disagree with what you're saying about the impact of what he's uh, of of his uh, his vengeance tour and 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 the fact that he's been spilling the beans. I think actually it does have an impact. I think that it destabilizes uh, Downing Street. They don't know what else he's going to do. They don't know how many other WhatsApp messages he's got. Uh, it's quite clear that Boris Johnson. Uh, was a very promiscuous user of uh, WhatsApp, and so there are a lot. You know, there should be you know quite a long digital trail of all of the various things he said, and so I think it. I think it probably does have more of an effect than is obvious, and uh, and I think it also possibly helped in a way to put Matt Hancock in a weaker position when the time came. Uh, where he you know, uh, got caught and and had to leave. So I think that it actually does have an impact. I also do think that uh, although he's self-serving in the way that he describes things, and he's he tends to be quite accurate about other people, but not about himself. And so, uh, and also in his judgment of himself. So, for example, there's no question but that he was uh, a kind of uh, an intellectual. Uh, force in Downing Street, which set, which set some kind of policy direction, and was, and he was also somebody who was able to speak candidly to Boris Johnson. It's not quite clear who in Downing Street is now in a position to do that, apart from Boris Johnson's wife Carrie. And so, like, if you look at the chief of staff Dan Rosenfield, it appears that he doesn't have the kind of authority that Cummings had. So, so I do think that you know, if you if you sort of assess Cummings both then and now. It's a mixed bag. Uh, He is quite clearly not in any sense committed to democratic norms. Uh, For example, he talks about uh, possibly setting up a new political force, which would, 
you know, eliminate the existing parties and replace them, or maybe you just sort of do a kind of an entryist routine like he did with the Conservative Party, simply take it over. And so he doesn't believe in, uh, you know, I, I, although he, he claims that uh, his uncle, who was a, a judge, was one of the people he venerates most in his life. He doesn't really have much respect for other judges or for, uh, you know, or for rules. And so, for example, in the coronavirus crisis, he was very frustrated by the idea that you had procurement rules. And uh, he just thought they should all be smashed, which, of course, it seems they did. And they gave a lot of these procurement contracts to cronies. And so uh, so I think that you know, uh, he's certainly an interesting person. He's a, a very intelligent person, and he's got some knowledge about certain things. And he's also, as you say, he's uh, one of the most brilliant campaigners or campaign directors that Britain has seen in recent history. And of course, his nickname for Boris Johnson is Trolley, meaning that he's like a supermarket trolley that is just essentially an unguided missile that can go off in any direction, colliding into shells with no sense of a sentient brain um, calling calling the shots. And uh, Boris Johnson is going to have to return to the Northern Ireland Protocol, I presume in a few weeks. I presume this sausage war truce holds until September and then the clock starts ticking again. You were writing last week about the uh, the British proposal to renegotiate the protocol, which was unsurprisingly rejected by the, by the EU. Are we just back to where we were again in September? And what did that submission of that suggestion by the UK last week suggest? I suspect they just want to keep this on a longer finger forever with deferrals and deferrals and deferrals, do they? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, that uh, certainly, there are two parts to what they want. One is that they're asking for this standstill period where you would freeze the current arrangements. And so all of these uh, grace periods, which are due to come to an end, say, at the end of September, that they would be rolled over. But also that the European Union would pause its legal action against Britain over its unilateral actions uh, on the protocol, which the European Union has agreed to do. It just announced that it was pausing these actions. And that then that this should create the space to effectively renegotiate the protocol to kind of tear out most of the, uh, the, the, the key elements in how it's run. And so I think the Europeans are quite clearly prepared to talk about the standstill period. And I would have thought that uh, maybe just rolling over this status quo indefinitely might be not a bad idea from Britain's point of view, because you effectively create facts on the ground so that if at some stage in a year or two, the European Union said, now we actually want to implement the whole thing in full, it, uh, you know, any kind of international arbitrator might say, look, come on, this thing has been running in this way, you know, for so long. But speaking to people in Downing Street, it's quite clear that that's not what Boris Johnson thinks. Boris Johnson really does want a root and branch, uh, reform of this uh, protocol. He wants to change it. He wants to uh, remove the role of the European Court of Justice. He wants effectively to eliminate uh, all checks for any British-made product that's going over to uh, Northern Ireland. He wants a kind of a trust system. And so a trust trader scheme, but also that the European Union would trust Britain to implement the rules but that it wouldn't actually have any oversight. So this whole uh, arrangement whereby uh, Northern Ireland would remain part of uh, the European single market for regulation and would remain subject to EU customs rules, which was explicitly part of the protocol, that would all just go. 
and uh, and that he's very serious about it. And uh, you know, one person I was talking to suggested that he would be prepared to go uh, all the way towards uh, towards uh, overturning the entire trading agreement with the European Union. That seems to me to be fanciful. Whether he believes he's prepared to do that or not, another matter. But in other words, that the that, that Boris Johnson takes this very seriously. That the the drive for this is coming very much from him rather than from David Frost. And so I think that when you get to September. You probably will have a negotiation about the standstill. And then the question is, what are the terms of that? And so Britain obviously will say the terms of this should be that you agree to negotiate all these elements we're talking about. Europe will say we're not negotiating on the text of the protocol. And in fact, we should use the standstill for you to start implementing the parts of the protocol you haven't been doing already, like sort of sharing data with the European Union, for example. Last question, if you you don't mind. If that is Boris Johnson's position. It reminds me of all those cartoons we used to see in the newspapers back in 2019 of, you know, the British side, you know, holding a gun to its head and saying, do what we tell you or I'll shoot, you know? I mean, where is the incentive for the EU to move in that direction? I think there's not. And I think there's a fundamental misreading of the European Union, which has actually been the misreading that Britain has had all the way along. So, for example, people in the British system think that uh, the uh, the joint committee with, with you know co-chaired by David Frost and Mara Shevkovich, that that is not adequate to deal with this, and that even the European Commission president Ursula von der Leyen couldn't, and that they need political involvement from the European capitals. Now, every time there is political involvement from the European capitals, it works out very badly for Britain, because the only people who are really interested in a compromise are Shevkovich and von der Leyen, and you know for the rest of them they just think, you know, you agree to this thing, we have to protect our single market, just get on and do it. And as you say, there is an asymmetry so that if the trade agreement were to collapse, that would hurt Britain much more than it would hurt uh, the European Union. So I think that is the political reality. But I still, I do think, and that again is one of, to go back to Dominic Cummings, part of the myth that they all believe and that the Vote Leave faction believes and that he believes is that they got a really good deal by being tough and by these histrionics. In fact, they got a terrible deal. The Europeans got everything they wanted, and they got very little of what they wanted. They got a few big things that they wanted in terms of uh, theology and of uh, you know, avoiding alignment, but they paid a huge price for it. And they got very, very few of their uh, forward demands, and, uh, and they ended up with the arrangement in Northern Ireland, which they're now complaining about. Dennis, thanks very much. Thanks also to Jennifer and Jack for joining us earlier. That's all for today. Thanks to our producer, Suzanne Brennan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We will be back very soon, but do remember that you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.